Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. This week, we were joined by the Dr. Walt Biffle of the Biffle Score for Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury. Dr. Biffle is a trauma surgeon at Scripps Memorial Hospital, La Jolla, in San Diego, California. We picked Dr. Biffle's brain on this episode, and yes, the pun was definitely intended, on what goes into generating good clinical guidelines. We then delve into his work on blunt cerebrovascular disease, and finally, on pancreatic trauma. As always, send your questions, thoughts, and comments to podcast.cjs at gmail.com or to Twitter at our Twitter handle at CanJSurge. For those very few people who don't know who you are, can you tell us about where you grew up and what your training pathway was? Oh, yeah. Well, I was born in South Florida, in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we lived there just a few years before my father's job moved us to Buffalo, New York, kind of the opposite of South Florida. So I grew up there, grew to appreciate a good blizzard, and uh, became a big fan of the Buffalo Sabres, who could never win the big one, and the Buffalo Bills, who could never win the big one. But um, that was, uh, you know, fine place to be a kid. But when I was old enough, I went away to college. I went to Duke University in North Carolina, and then uh, George Washington University for med school. Uh, so I was in D.C. for four years. And then I moved out west, did my residency at the University of Colorado. Uh, in the middle of it, I did a two-year uh, research fellowship in Gene Moore's lab. And I was fortunate enough to join the faculty and work with him. And initially, his brother Fred, well, his brother Fred left before then, but uh, at Denver Health Medical Center on the faculty of the University of Colorado. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to have Dr. Moore as a mentor during your training and, and how did that shape your career trajectory? Oh, he was, uh, he was amazing. And, uh, you know, I don't know what my career would look like if I hadn't been, uh, you know, at that program working under him. I, I remember um, still when I was a med student there on my interview and when you went to the Denver General and uh, all the applicants are in his office and he's sitting there with, in his scrubs, his bulging biceps and his big mustache and surrounded by hunting trophies and bullets and uh, all these uh, things from around the world, his world travels and uh, you know the, the journals and everything in his office talking about how this is gonna be a rigorous program and we're gonna push you and you're gonna learn, you're gonna stay on top of the evidence and. And that's the way the program was. Alden Harkin, our chairman, and, and Gene would just, they would push us to know 
not just what to do, but why to do it. And it was a daily thing there um, in the program. And, and Gene, you know, as a as faculty and then as a colleague, he always set the pace for uh, not just clinical productivity, academic productivity, everything, living life to the fullest. And he set a bar so high, we just struggled to keep up all the time. Really an amazing guy to work for and, and to get to know. That's such a neat description. I'm, I'm sure you do the same for, for all your trainees now. You, you know, Walt, you, you've done so much in, in sort of a medium length of time, if I can put it that way, that it's, it's hard to talk about it all. But maybe our starting point, um, uh, if you're okay with it, would be just a, a conceptual discussion surrounding how clinical practice guidelines are, are generated. And obviously, I bring that up because you've done so much work with the WSES and the WTA and and you know the, 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 the I don't know what exactly what you think, but you know for me in the world of guidelines and trauma and critical care in general, the WTA ones are always always at the top of my list. They're always the most practical and direct and and really well done. And obviously, I'm biased, but my favorite or favorite of all of them, of course, is is your pancreas guideline. So, I was curious if you could walk our listeners through how these CPGs get generated, who's invited, what that process actually looks like. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting that uh, I wasn't part of the committee when they started at WTA. The uh, current president, Robert McIntyre, and Gene and Fred Moore, and several others created that committee and um, ran it for the first several years. And then I was fortunate enough to get a, appointed to it. But, um, it, you know, you hit it right on the head there. The practicality of the WTA algorithms is what sets them apart. And um, you also mentioned WSCS, which is more of a classic evidence-based medicine format. And as you know, in trauma, there is so little high quality evidence. Just no center has the volume, even multi-center studies like the pancreas study we just completed. You don't have um, the level one evidence to say this is definitively the way to do it. And so the WTA decided that we wanted to provide a, a practical approach and not just these are your options, but here is an algorithm to follow, explain why each decision is made the way it is, but say, this is a safe approach. You can follow all these steps, you can support it, and we think it's safe. And it was based not just on available evidence, but on the experienced members of the group who had been there and done it. You know, in, in contrast, uh, you have EAST guidelines, which are very valuable. Everybody refers to them. And, and the World Society of Emergency Surgery guidelines, they're all valuable. But I agree with you. I am biased. and But I think that having that step-by-step -step, uh, approach is very helpful. And, I, you know, I contrast it with, for example, the resuscitative thoracotomy. You have the EAST practice management guideline. And evidence isn't very good. So you only have uh, out of six different scenarios, there's one strong recommendation and the rest are conditional. Like, well, okay, I got a patient dying here. I don't need a conditional mm -hmm. recommendation, but you pull out the WTA guideline and that's got clear uh, parameters for futility. We, you know, pronounce them dead and walk away or you, you cut them and this is what you look for. And this is what you try to correct and, and go from there. So I, I do think that they're um, helpful and to have the bedside. 
you know, I, I think your description of, of the comparisons is absolutely perfect. And I'm curious, what is it about the WTA group that's able to avoid some of those pitfalls? Because, you know, my experience in, in uh, CPG committees sometimes, not always, but sometimes is certainly that you have, you know, eight people in a room and there's eight subtopics within that, that umbrella. And probably every single person in the room is really passionate about one of those eight things. And in the absence of, you know, as you as you point out, level one high quality evidence, you know, the, the person kind of you know pushes all their chips into the table on their particular subsection. And that's kind of the way the guideline flows. And certainly, you know, I think we've all seen guidelines get lost a little bit. So how, how do how do you guys in the WTA group prevent that and how do you avoid some of those pitfalls? Well, you're always going to have a lot of discussion and uh there's one you know, one that stands out that was ended up more like you're talking about the, the pelvic fracture algorithm. It was done initially early on, Jim Davis and others. Uh, Jim might have been the first author, but several years later, it came up for renewal. And, and I think Nick Namias was leading it. And everybody, Denver Group had started pelvic packing at that point, and, and uh, others were promoting angio. So <laughs> Nick Namias comes in and says, it looks like a wagon wheel. There's no clear pathway here. It's just, um, you know, so it was hard. Everybody had an opinion. Nobody had the most compelling data, but it, you know, in the end the, the group works because it's, you know, we, we do find a way to come to consensus and, and um, just focus on creating a usable document. And, we do get a lot of feedback from the membership. It's, uh, you know, it's done in a small room, but then it's brought out and presented to the, the entire group and uh, questions are raised and it goes back for more revisions. So there's a lot that goes into it, but uh, somehow we're able to, to get them done. Yeah, they, they really are re remarkable, almost almost too, uh, too, too perfect, to be honest, from, from uh, guideline to guideline, they're, they're fantastic. If you were to give advice then in terms of an overall framework, like let's say uh, in Canada, we wanted to write a guideline on the utility, uh, the role of hybrid operating suites. How, how would you recommend that uh, the one or two or three people in charge or tasked with that would, would start? How would they create a committee and, and how would they move forward in a, in a relatively structured way? Well, I think you know, keys are uh, number one, getting good literature and getting subject matter experts to the extent that you can. People who have used it, who know the pitfalls. Because um, we've seen some of these things fail when uh, somebody who doesn't have a lot of clinical experience with it will just go and read what's published. But, you mm -hmm. know, you're dealing with publication bias, uh, not the greatest quality evidence sometimes. So you can go down the wrong path if you're just relying on what has been published. So, so the, the expertise of people who have done it and the, uh, the, the best quality literature and, and the experts are the ones who can interpret the literature. And I think initially keep the group pretty small and then go from there to, to start working toward consensus. Uh, that's, uh, that's perfect. That's wise advice. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, I, I remember uh, quite early on training in Atlanta with Dave Feliciano and, and Grace Rizicki, we've also had on the podcast. And, mm -hmm. and I remember, you know, Dr. Feliciano saying, oh, yeah, no, you know, CPGs are great, guidelines are great, and you're welcome to, to come off the guideline, but you better not be wrong. 
And so I, you know, I, I always remember that. And, and, and certainly I think we all, to your point, uh, with increasing experience in a given patient will navigate away from them and, and back to them and so on in that pattern. But, you know, I, I'm curious with that uh, framing then, how do you view um, trainees, surgical trainees or surgical fellows uh, using guidelines and, and placing them within their sort of uh, study pathway and, and their knowledge acquisition? Uh, I think it's the way to go. Uh, and I've always been a big fan. In fact, that's how I prepared for my boards as I drew out algorithms on index cards for all the potential clinical problems. So I think they're a, a great starting point is to map it out. And then as you acquire more knowledge or experience or new things are published, then you can change the decision tree uh, a little bit. And uh, you know, it, it happens uh, as we read the literature, things continue to come out that are going to change our approach to various problems. But I think if you start with an approach and have the rationale for it, um, then you can take everything that's published that's new and, and put it in context. Sort of along those lines, Dr. Biffle, you gave a really thoughtful presidential address that was published in the American Journal of Surgery where you talk about evidence-based medicine in surgery. Uh, and one of the things you talk about is some of the limitations of EBM uh, in surgery, and, and one of them being that, that guidelines and evidence do change. And so in your experience working with committees on guidelines, multiple iterations of guidelines, how do you sort of think about changing the guidelines in light of new evidence, particularly when, you know, I'm thinking, for example, in the colorectal world where, uh, you know, mechanical bowel preparation and oral antibiotics, that pendulum has swung back and forth so many times, it's hard to keep track. Um, how do you think about that uh, changing guidelines in the light of new evidence? And how often does that scenario seem to come up? Yeah, well, um, first, I need to correct you, I haven't been the president of anything. So it was a it was an invited lecture. And I'm glad that somebody read it. Uh, it it's, it's really interesting. And it's something that we have to deal with. And, and, uh, you know, when you think about evidence-based medicine, first of all, I, I think, you know, I encourage it. I think we should all be following it. I, um, I, I like to get guidelines to get everybody on the same page and using uh, current recommendations. And, and I think it helps trainees. It does change though. And, um, you know, a couple examples that I had in that lecture, in that paper were, um, well, the uh, steroids for spinal cord injury when I was a resident, that was a standard of care. In fact, I was named in a malpractice suit in the US. It didn't go anywhere, but it was considered a standard of care and they said we didn't give them, but we actually had. As you know, now it's considered the wrong thing to do to give them. And, and I had, um, in preparing this lecture, I had, uh, I was curious about some of the most popular or most cited clinical trials from the New England Journal of Medicine. I think that's the most influential journal in the world. Something comes out in that and it's pretty quickly adopted like the NASCIS two trial. But I, I looked at, um, you can search uh, the most uh, frequently cited trials. And when I did this, uh, out of the five most frequently cited trials ever in the New England Journal, three of them were in the field of critical care and were all published in 2001. One was on early goal-directed therapy, the River study, one was the tight glucose control in critical care patients, and one was a study on Zygris uh, for severe sepsis. All those things were incorporated into the surviving sepsis guidelines, and none of the three 
lived to the third iteration of the surviving sepsis guidelines, at least in the form that they were published. So it, things do change over time and we have to keep up with the uh, literature and, and um, change with it. And another thing that I, I think is important is when you're looking at new literature or something that comes out that might change your algorithm, it's incredibly important to make sure that it applies to the patient who's in front of you before you extrapolate it. Is it asking and answering the question that you want answered? And I think that's a pitfall that we get into a lot of times when um, something is recommended or done, say, well, wait a second, that wasn't who they were studying in that trial. And there's reasons not to do it for this patient. So I think that when you look at the literature, that's a, a big thing to consider. Yeah, you know, for our listeners, I'll, I'll point people to a book that I found very helpful, which is called Ending Medical Reversal. And uh, Vinay Prasad and Adam Chifu do a great job of doing exactly what you did in your, your address, Dr. Biffle, which is going through all these different interventions that were initially thought to be helpful. And actually, when more evidence came out, actually were shown to be uh, sometimes not helpful and actually sometimes harmful. And so you, you kind of have to take all these things, as you're saying, with, with a grain of salt. One of the things that's challenging, though, in surgery is that expert opinion does have a role. And you, in your address, you kind of talk about this scenario where you have this retrohepatic cable injury and you call in Dr. Moore and he says, well, I've just been reading about this. Uh, you know, we, we should try a veno-veno bypass and uh, cannulate the SMV. And, and, and the patient did really well. And you actually went on and published that case report. So, you know, in surgery, maybe unlike cardiology or some other fields where you have a medication, you give the medication, you know, that, that it doesn't matter who gives it. Um, and it doesn't matter which cardiology says, a cardiologist says this is a good medication or not, that you just do the trial. But in surgery, it's not really like that. You know, expert opinion, when you have someone who has a huge expertise in doing something, that does really matter. And so I'm curious how you think about incorporating uh, expert opinion into uh, clinical guidelines and uh, into into evidence. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, when evidence-based medicine uh, came about, that field, it was, it was stated that they were minimizing the influences of experience and intuition and those things and, and wanted it to be about the most high quality scientific evidence. And you hit it right on the head. That's true when you're treating hypertension or MI, but surgery and trauma are very different because every patient presents with a, a different set of circumstances. And, and that's why I think with the WTA guidelines, there's so much experience and judgment that goes into creating those. That's what I think sets them apart and makes them more helpful because you're not just saying, well, okay, here's the, the best quality evidence is a level 2B and this is what we think. And but <laughs> we say, you know, we've been there and this is what we recommend. And, and so I, I think there's definitely a role. It's not um, the thing that the evidence-based medicine zealots would promote, but in our field, it's very helpful. And it just, uh, on a related note, it, you know, the, everybody's familiar with the, uh, the parachute uh, analogy. Nobody's ever studied parachutes and 
Um, <laughs> the original paper said, well, all these people who are fanatics about evidence-based medicine ought to be first in line to study the efficacy of parachutes. And uh, you may have seen the, the actual prospective randomized study that was done using parachutes. And this gets at the point of the, the conditions of the study and who it applies to. They found that parachutes uh, didn't make a difference and they randomized people jumping out of an airplane with a parachute versus an empty backpack, but they were uh, planes that were on the ground. And so when you look <laughs> at that and say, okay, they were equivalent, but they're not jumping from 30,000 feet, they're jumping from six feet. So uh, it, it just reminds us, you gotta pay attention to the conditions that they're studying. Yeah, the, the, the role of evidence-based medicine and, and its evolution over the years is particularly in interesting from a Canadian perspective because of course, you know, the Gordon Guyette and, and his, his group in, in Hamilton are really credited with that yeah. initiation. And he's certainly had some really fun and intense debates over the years with some of the anti-EBM orthopods and some really great scientists, mm -hmm. to be honest. It's, uh, it's been great for sure. Yeah. How do you think this EBM all plays out now in this world with social media, uh, you know, we, the, the development of visual abstracts? And, and you, you talked about the idea of spin, uh, I think, as well in, in your address. And that was obviously that's common in abstracts and titles, but it's, you know, there is a very big potential for that with visual abstracts and in general on social media. So how do you think EBM and surgery interact with a world where, like it or not, social media is the driver and for promulgation of new research. Yeah, well, um, I think there's a, a lot of pitfalls. I think it's great that people are informed, but it's not regulated. And you get one person in favor of something and they start spreading the word and, and soon you have everybody asking for a treatment that really isn't helpful. Uh, may go against my recommendation. And it, you know, it takes a little more time to counsel those patients away from what they heard about from a friend or read on social media. And uh, yeah, I, I think it can be problematic. Yeah, there's no doubt. You know, a couple of the other things we wanted to touch on, Dr. Biff, with, if, uh, if you're okay with it, is some of the tremendous work you've done on, on both pancreatic injury, which we've sort of danced around a little bit as well as blunt cerebrovascular injuries, of course. If we, if we start with, the, with the, uh, the pancreas side of things first, um, I'm curious how you frame these injuries in particular, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, recommendations or thoughts maybe at a, at a high level for the general surgeon who has to deal with these, um, you know, let's say they're in a, a city like Red Deer, which is, you know, equidistant between Calgary and, and Edmonton, and they're forced into uh, operating on uh, a patient in a damage control scenario, and they find varying degrees of pancreas injury, just as one example. How, how do you frame pancreas injuries for the general surgeon, and, and, and where do you take it from there? Yeah, well, uh, I, for any listeners who don't know, you are the expert in pancreas here, not me. But um, I think that for those of us who you know, practice trauma or general surgeons who are doing it, there's a, a couple key things. One is you don't wanna miss a main duct injury because that's where the morbidity comes from. If you encounter one, drain the pancreas. And if you're not experienced or comfortable 
with doing a resection than find somebody who is. But draining it is always safe. Um, you know, the worst that can happen there is they have a pancreatic fistula, which could also happen if you operate it, or, or it could be worse. But uh, I think damage control is a great initial strategy. And I, I do think that once you start getting into resections, as you know, um, they can be pretty complex and um, the outcomes aren't great in many cases. So, I mean, I guess one of the beautiful things, at least I think from years of my point of view is to your exact point, you know, the, the pancreas injury uh, in terms of it being an isolated problem is not, not really a big deal up front, right? You can always, as you said, drain that and send it out or, or uh, you know, think about it and consider it and take the patient back. It's really, of course, the higher grade uh, injuries with maybe a complex duodenal and ampullary injuries, plus or minus, of course, uh, the associated vascular injuries. So I'm, I'm curious how you how you frame those those two scenarios and uh, and, and what you like to do or not do. Yeah. So uh, you know, in the the high grade injuries, the worst ones uh, clearly damage control is the best approach and stop the bleeding. We had in this multi center style uh, trial that we just did on the high grade injuries. There were about 18% of patients who died early, um, and the, most of them were bleeding uh, deaths. And so you don't really die of a pancreas injury in the first 24 hours. So controlling the bleeding, doing damage control, and draining it gives you time to stabilize the patient and come back and start putting things back together. Yeah, for sure. And it all, of course, gives you the time to invite an experienced colleague back in with you or, or transfer that patient out as well, no doubt. If, if we shift gears to blunt cerebrovascular injuries, and I think, you know, all of our listeners know this, but, you know, the, the, what's, what's become the AAST BCVI uh, scale, no one really calls it that. Everyone calls it the, the BIFL scale. You have, a, you have a BIFL grade two or a BIFL grade four or something like that. And I was always curious at, at that level you know, how, how in your case, Dr. Biffle felt about everyone using your, your last name every day in every, every ICU, but, you know, in, independent of that, I was wondering if you could walk us through really the origins of, of that and how you came to study that. Well, first of all, I'm not comfortable with that terminology. I'd prefer it be called <laughs> a gender grade because I certainly didn't create it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to be the first author on that paper, but Gene Moore and John Birch and others um, put the brains behind that. But they, you know, at the time, um, well, I guess to talk about BCBI in general, I, I was exposed to it pretty early on. Actually, the first case I saw, I was an intern. This is 1990. And at the time, if you open a trauma textbook and to read about blunt cerebrovascular injury, said, well, it wasn't cerebrovascular, it was carotid and said, well, a patient who has a stroke without any finding on the CT scan has had a blunt carotid injury. That's how you diagnosed it is when they had a stroke. And I had a patient who had a stroke at Denver General when I was an intern. And um, when I was a more senior resident, there were, um, a Fabian study came out from Memphis showing that heparin was effective therapy for carotid injuries. And in that study, over 90% of the patients had symptoms, uh, either a Horner syndrome or a lateralizing deficit, something. And we had started um, a study. This was at the time, again, when you were doing arteriography to, to look for a torn aorta in trauma patients. So 
Um, there, Gene and Fred and others had an interest in carotid injuries from some WTA studies. So in the mid nineties, there was a, a study going on to look at uh, CT versus arteriography for torn aortas. And they did some arteriograms in the neck to look at the carotid arteries and found that um, about 4% of the patients had carotid injuries that were unsuspected. And so in late 1990s or mid 1996, we started screening asymptomatic patients. We had a protocol and, and you didn't need to have a Horner syndrome or a lateralized deficit. We started screening them. And uh, the first paper, we called it the unrecognized epidemic of carotid artery injuries because we found them in about 1% of patients, which was 10 times more than what was reported in all the multi-center studies before. And um, it just, it grew from there. And, you know, one of the early things we did, Gene had always been involved in the AAST organ injury scale grading papers and said, you know, this should have a grade that goes along with the outcomes. And we sat and thought about it and said, well, okay, a, a grade one injury, that's just a little mild intimal irregularity. There's no narrowing that's going to cause any flow limitation. So we arbitrarily said, well, that's going to be something that's less than 25% narrowing. Um, the artery wall looks irregular. So that's a grade one. A grade two is one with the more significant narrowing, not completely occluded, but from 25% to 99% narrowed, plus the visualization of an intimal flap or intraluminal thrombus. Those were all lumped as grade two. Uh, pseudoaneurysms were graded as grade three, occluded arteries were grade four, and those that were transected with bleeding were grade five, and those are fortunately rare. And they did in fact correlate with stroke rates um, in the carotid artery. So that was, um, that held up and it's, it's held up over time. Um, there has been, uh, you know, a, a couple of papers that try to subdivide them based on the degree of narrowing in grade twos, for example, but um, so far it seems to hold up and, and you can generally use it to, to assess the risk for the patient. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt it's, it's held up for, for sure. I mean, it's really become the foundational way that we look at these and then, and then use that, that grading scale to treat uh, all these injuries, I think, I think globally. Certainly, though, I think uh, hopefully you'd agree that the detection side of it, the diagnostic side of it, though, is changing. And you know, I, I don't think it's in the you know too distant future future where really these injuries are screened in that in that initial um, uh, first CT scan uh, out of the gate in almost everybody. Um, what what are you guys doing at your center? Who who are you screening and who are you not, or is it ubiquitous? We are um, not screening universally. That, that's been interesting looking at those um, couple of papers that have been uh, put mm -hmm. out. One group found, reported, I think it was from uh, Medical College of Virginia, they found injuries in about 3% of patients and they, they did uh, CTA on everybody. They did pan scan with CTA. And then uh, the others in Birmingham, they had almost an 8% incidence of BCBI, which uh, was, I, I don't understand how it was so high, but you know, clearly finding more. And we've always known that the more you look, the more you find. 8% um, seemed high. I don't know if it has something to do with their patient population or if they're overreading some uh, cases of spasm or how many are grade one injuries, but 
nevertheless, I think that right now we use the, the expanded or modified Denver criteria, but um, there's, I, I see definite advantages to doing it with the first scan. So you don't have to go back to the scanner and give another dose of contrast. And I think that's the, the biggest reason to do it. One thing to note is in the um, MCV paper, they had looked at the value of the Denver and Memphis criteria and every patient that had an injury that wasn't picked up by the Denver and Memphis criteria was in a motor vehicle crash. So the higher uh, energy mechanism would um, be part of the picture. And so I think if you're gonna start screening more and more people, definitely the, the high energy mechanisms. But then you have another body of literature saying that the elderly who fall from ground level are, you know, have a higher than average rate of injury. So you, you come back to doing it in everybody. We're not there yet. Are you doing it in your place? You know, across Canada, some centers are and some centers are not. We're, we're not uh, at this point. We're using exactly the, the criteria, the extended Denver criteria that you, that you comment, plus or minus some mechanistic uh, alterations. But, you know, I, I, I really struggle with it. And I, I, I think, you know, amongst so many cases that, that we all see, the, these ones in particular, at least for me personally, have, have struck me hard. I, you know, I guess I, that's how you know it's random, something clusters. But I remember a a two-week run close to 10 years ago where we had three young ladies who were all motor vehicle crash um, uh, victims and and we didn't we didn't screen them at that time and honestly you know uh, probably two of them maybe should have been but in hindsight but didn't get screened and all three had huge strokes and it was those were harrowing conversations with with these young gals parents who came in the next day and sort of said well I left last night and things were good. And now I can't communicate with my daughter. And, um, you know, I think we, we treat lots of things based on a, a bit of emotion and hopefully not often, but, but we do. And it's so easy to fall into the lull of, you know, if I don't look for it, it's not there. And I don't see the clinical consequence of it, but this seems to be one where, you know, the, the, the miss rate maybe is not worth, um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where the equation sits, but I, I certainly am biased by those experiences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, we talk about evidence-based medicine, but nothing means more than the cases you've personally had. And I, I think that trumps what they published in Denver or Memphis. Yeah, for, for good or for bad, maybe. Eh? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if we switch gears again, I, I was hoping to take you out of the clinical realm. And, and Amir and I certainly know from many, many people about your your legendary knowledge and, and love uh, of wine in general. I, I was wondering if you could talk to us about that and where that comes from. Um, and I, I think, I, you know, for for, for me, I, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I, I've been to Napa once and, uh, you know, outside of running into Dave Matthews in a, in a store in his hometown there where he lives, um, the second most impressive thing to me was just the, the amount of knowledge uh, is mind-boggling. It seems like it puts the surgical body of knowledge at at uh, you know at, at child's play compared to what I don't understand about wine. Yeah, well, it's a fun and expensive hobby. Um, I guess I was a beer drinker um, for my early earlier years, um, 
my first trip to Napa was in the mid nineties, I guess, while I was in the lab and my brother graduated from business school at Stanford and we went up to Napa and um, I went around some actually mainly Sonoma Valley and got a bunch of red Zinfandels and took them home and had a big party, a dinner party. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I joined a couple wine of the month clubs and, and started tasting different things and a, a couple more trips. And, and it, what it, when it really got to be a problem for me, I say, and that, you know, the wine buying thing, when I moved to Rhode Island and the, you know, the food and wine culture there is great. And Bill Chaffee was my chairman and he got me in his wine tasting group. And, um, and I got to be friends with a guy who owned a, a wine store and it specialized in Italian wines. Cause that's the big influence in Providence. And I just started learning so much about Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Italian wines. And, um, you know, I liked everything and, and started learning more about it. And, so it, it uh, like I say, became a real expensive hobby for me, but it, it's fun. My wife uh, and I, we get a bunch of magazines. She likes to pick a different meal every night and I pick the wine to go with it. <laughs> and it's fun. We've been fortunate to go to Tuscany a couple times and, and we're actually going to Napa in March, hoping the things are open again for tasting. I haven't been to Washington wow. State yet. I want to visit some wineries there. But we were in uh, Willamette Valley in Oregon, uh, visiting some Pinot Noir places. So it's fun to go around and learn about it. Wine Spectator magazine has replaced my medical journals on my bedside table. I grew up with a with a guy, and actually went to medical school with him. His sister was the uh, lives in downtown Toronto, and she was the first women woman to win the sort of world sommelier championship. And wow. And, uh, you know, we were always sort of messing with her and she was always schooling us and embarrassing us. And we had, we had uh, four or five bottles of wine and she said to us, well, you, you guys open those up and I'll tell you, you know, the year, just the whole thing. And that always boggled my mind. And so we're, you know, the first one, she nails it first, just smelling it. The second one, she nails it. And the third one, she gives us this answer and, and we start laughing and giggling like, like children. And we say, no, you're wrong. And she's like, I'm not wrong. We're like, no, no, you're wrong. And she's like, okay, let me, let me taste it again. And she said, there's only one possibility that I'm wrong. And she said, in Niagara, there was a freeze um, at the wrong time of the year, this particular year with this particular winery. And they had to bring in grapes from Bordeaux or somewhere in, uh, in Europe. And they mixed it uh, with, their, with their preceding ones. And so that's the only other thing this could be in the world. And she was dead right. Oh, man. And it, I was just like, it's almost like like financial advisors that are great, right? It was like, I, I can't even start this. I, I, I can't even walk into it. There's no way. It's great. Uh, you know, one, one of the questions we like to, uh, we like to end um, our podcast with is, is to ask you, if you were to go back in time and, and give your younger self, you know, a, a piece of sage advice, what, what would that be? And you know, oh. be before you answer, you, you, you've obviously done so, so much uh, great clinical work and you've been such an impressive contributor to trauma, critical care, acute care surgery and the surgical world in general. And, and we can't thank you enough for, for having been on the show again. Well, thanks, Chad. I, yeah, there's so many things I would um, like a second crack at, but I, you know, I think that the big thing is um, to always put everything into it you know it's uh carpe diem but not just to have fun but 
take advantage of the opportunities that are presented. You know, if you have a case to present at M&M, just read the last paper written on it, read everything you can find and learn from it and teach other people as much as you can. I, one thing I, I didn't mention um, about Gene Moore that really uh, influenced me is the emphasis on understanding the history of the problem that you're writing about or learning about. And it was always important. You can't, you can't write about something without understanding where it was coming from, where it was before. And uh, I think that when you're trying to learn about something, go as far back as you can, trace it back to try to figure out how it got to where it is now. And that'll help you understand why it's there and, and what might have to happen for it to change moving forward. And I think just taking advantage of the opportunities of the people you can learn from, of the things you can do and experience. And um, yeah, it'll be more fulfilling that way. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.